Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music. Welcome to our evening service. I'm inviting you to turn again to the book of Ecclesiastes in your Old Testament. That comes after, right after Psalms and Proverbs. And you'll notice in our outline tonight that I'm going to take the whole second chapter as one text. I'll explain a little more about that in a minute and why I'm doing that. You know, the Bible says that we are in the latter days, and it seems the more we look around us, we're sure that we're in the latter times of the latter days, when we see the things happening around us that are the apostasy, the, the unbelief. Uh, Romans 1 says this age, age will end in uh, God turning them over to a reprobate mind, and it seems like Surely we're close to that. Satan is called the deceiver in the scripture, and he is the God with a small g, the God of this world. He even at one time offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world because they are basically his to offer in the sense that he guides, he leads, and he deceives. But the Holy Spirit's called the restrainer. We have a deceiver and we have a restrainer. And the Holy Spirit is working in us as believers and through us in this age that we live in as he has for 2,000 years to restrain what Satan is doing and restrain uh, the apostasy and unbelief. But the Holy Spirit's going to be removed sometime. Of course, that's at the rapture. When the rapture happens, we'll go and the Holy Spirit will go with us. And when that happens, the world will be cast into chaos and unbelief, lawlessness, and uh, the judgment of God in the tribulation period. And, and it seems like we're quickly headed that way. When we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we, we see kind of uh, people, well, Solomon expressing uh, a kind of uh, what's the use type of attitude in the day in which he lives. But isn't it interesting that he's expressing that 3,000 years ago? And so things haven't changed a lot either. I mean, uh, man has always been this way. And the problems that Solomon describes in this book, we still have today, and he had them back then. Uh, the world sometimes has cycled to better times and worse times, times of war and times of peace. Uh, and uh, maybe we're seeing a cycle like that too. Well, I'm going to take the whole chapter of chapter 2 as one uh, unit, and I will end up reading all the verses, and you're going to uh, follow as I do, uh, section by section. But the reason is, you'll notice on my notes that I want to talk about three major sections that he has here, the, and all of them seen as vanity, vexation of spirit, the vanity of pleasures in this life that Solomon saw and dabbled in himself, the vanity of wisdom. He was a wise man. He knew uh, what wisdom was. And the vanity of the labor of our hands. What's the use of it all? When, it gets, when it's all done, uh, was it worthwhile? That kind of question and those answers have always been with us. But one of the reasons we see that this all fits together in kind of one unit is there are three conclusions. And you notice in my outline, whether you're seeing on a screen or on the bulletin, that at the end of each of those three points, there's a conclusion. Notice, for example, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Then I looked on all the works of my hands 
uh, that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity, grasping for the wind, you might have vexation of spirit, and there is no profit under the sun. Look at verse 17. After he talks a, a while longer, he says, Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a grasping for the wind. And all the way down to verse 26, the very last one, in the second part of that verse, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him that is good before God, this also is vanity and grasping for the wind or vexation of spirit. So three sections with kind of a, a, a similar conclusion to each one, that's why they all fit together. So uh, if you will, uh, you have your outline and let's uh, go through these. First of all, he talks about the vanity of, of pleasures. And I have those, these verses then in 1 through 11 divided into kind of three types of pleasure. Indulgences, especially indulgences of the, of the flesh. Passions that we have in life. And then our quest for greatness. So notice, I, I, I want to kind of, you'll see the list of these verse after verse. Notice in these three, first three verses, uh, the, the vanity of what I would call indulgences, that, uh, the things that we indulge in. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. Mirth. You know what? I had to go back, folks, and I had to make sure I pronounced that word right. You know, they brought to Jesus uh, <laughs> gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's a different word. And every time I see mirth, I want to say myrrh. You know, kind of the same way. But nope, it's, it's got a TH on it. And, of course, that, it, it means frivolity, enjoyment, pleasure in life. And that's what he's talking about when he says mirth. And in verse 2, just laughter. Even laughter, he says, is madness. And then eating and drinking, in verse 3, obviously that's an indulgence that people put themselves in uh, to kind of escape reality maybe sometimes. And then there, there is folly that he mentions also in, in verse 3. You know, with these kinds of things in our lives, the old nature that we have is always handy. If a person wants to search out any of those kinds of things in their lives, I guarantee you there's something inside you that says, yeah, I like that. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, that's part of our old nature. It's always there, and it will always oblige if you want to seek after those things. I think that Solomon, all of these things, knows that by the time he's writing this book. It's not like he's writing it, and as he's writing, he doesn't know the answer to these things. What he's doing for us is he's looking back on life, and a lot of it is in his life. We've talked about how he backslid in a time of his life into uh, a lot of sin in the last of his life. So he experienced some of this, but he brought himself out of it. 
He's writing now, and we're going to see at the end of this chapter, uh, he's going to say, uh, all is vanity unless you have God in your life. And so here he is exploring the indulgences. Secondly, from verse 4, I think through verse 8, what I would call passions. So notice now these verses. <laughs> Somebody said these are the Popeye verses in the Bible. You know, I have in the New King James, I made my works great. I built myself houses. I think in the old version it has, right? I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. <laughs> you know, you, you remember Popeye, don't you, who, uh, who said, I, I am what I am and that's all that I am, you know? So uh, forget it. That, that, was a, that was a youth pastor I heard say that one day. Okay. <laughs> so look at his passions. Number one, I built houses and planted vineyards. Verse five, I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Verse six, I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. Verse seven, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. So the herds and the flocks also. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of, of singers, uh, or excuse me, the kings uh, and their provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, musical instruments of all kinds. So verse 9, of course, so I became great. But here are these accomplishments. I did, I did want to read you two things from the history books of the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 8, if you're writing references, it's 2 Chronicles 8, 4 through 6. The writer of Chronicles says this about Solomon. He also built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the storage cities which he built in Hamath. He built Upper Beth Horon, Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars, also Baalath and the storage cities that Solomon had, all the chariot cities, the cities of the cavalry, uh, all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his domain. This, these are the things he built. And since he, he says here, I got all kinds of servants and help and all of that. First Kings chapter 5, 13 through 16. First Kings 5, he says, Then King Solomon raised up a labor force, listen to this, out of all Israel. And the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. <laughs> they were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains, besides 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who, surp who simply uh, supervised the people who labored in the work. That's amazing. I wouldn't even think you'd have that many people in your whole kingdom unless everybody had, you know, had a job to do. It was amazing, in other words, what I'm pointing out, when he had these passions to build houses and gardens and water pools and cities, 
it was amazing what he put himself to do. And so surely he can, he can advise anybody to say, I had these passions. I had these indulgences. And what is it? Without God, uh, it is vanity. Typical of rich people, isn't it? People who have that kind of wealth and mobility and power in this world. Do they have everything they want? I mean, these people who are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, do they have everything they want? Well, absolutely. Everything their flesh wants to uh, indulge in and everything else that they want in life. But are they happy? And when we ask ourselves, but are they happy? Too often the answer is no, isn't it? I, I, sure, there, there are a very few who have been blessed of God and become very rich and used it to glorify God and didn't lose their head over it. And you know some of those people. Last year we went to see the boyhood home of J.C. Penney right up here in, in Missouri and, and how he came from a long line of, of ministers and preachers and how he used his wealth to, you know, there are a few people like that, but not very many in this world, that, that's for sure. So what, what is your reason for getting things in life? Uh, you know, I, I'm probably not talking to too many of those billionaires tonight, but we have what we have, right? We, we have what we've worked for, we, and we, you know what you like to have and what you buy and so forth. Why do you do it? Do you do it so that you can serve God with it? That's, of course, what Solomon is saying, that if you lose sight of and you do this without God, it'll be a ruin in your life. Two more verses, then, about this vanity of pleasure is the greatness that comes in verse 9 and 10. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And notice uh, how now he, he talks in verse 10 and uh, down through verse 11, uh, uh, the, uh, the, his eyes and his heart and his hands. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works of my hands had done, and on the labor which I had toiled. And he says, indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There is no profit under the sun. You remember the Bible warns us about the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the and the uh, pleasures of life, right? Eve looked at the tree and saw that it was uh, pleasant to the eyes and desired to make one wise, and so she went after that, something that uh, the fallen human heart has always done. So the eyes, the heart, the hands, whatever, our mind, our brain, our feet, whatever, we put to work to try to get things. I remember someone saying, great, great men never wanted to be great. But this person was talking about great men of God and women of God, never really wanted to be great. You know what those kind of people wanted, those great Christian people? They simply wanted to serve God in every way they could, and so God helped them to be great in that effort. But great people of God didn't set out to say, I want to be a great person. I want to be a great, a great one. They just want to serve God in every way they can. And so God blessed them in that way. Now notice then, again, one of three conclusions 
uh, here in, in, uh, in verse 11, and I read it to you a minute ago, all is vanity, grasping for the wind. Uh, you, you might have vanity and vexation of spirit because the word wind and spirit are the same word in Hebrew, and so it can have both kinds of expressions in it. And there's no profit for these things under the sun. You know, when, when God made Adam, he made him to be a gardener. And he said, here's the garden, and here's what you're going to have. You're going to have every, every herb that bears seed to plant in the ground. You're going to have every tree that has seeds in the fruit to replant trees. I want you to be a gardener. And he set out to do that. And then after a while, God said to him, but it's not good that you do this alone. You need a helper. And so he made Eve out of, you know, his rib and all, you know, the whole story. So that then the man and the woman leave their father and the mother. They're joined together. And then they, too, become one flesh in what? In the work of God. That's what Adam and Eve did. And so the pattern even for marriage and for as we choose a, a partner to live our life with is, do you want to serve God with me? God's given me a job to do, and I, I want somebody to do it with me. Now, that doesn't mean you're a minister or a missionary or something like that. It just means God has given us a mandate in the age in which we live, too, to carry out his gospel, serve him in his church, to do the things that the New Testament describes for us to do. You want somebody to do it with you. And if you search out that and put those things first in your life, then you will find that uh, the, whatever you own and whatever you put your hand to do and whatever you desire in life can bring honor and glory to God. So vanity of pleasures, though, he, he uh, has explored first. Secondly, in 12 through 17, the vanity of, of wisdom. And no one was wiser than Solomon, and God had granted him uh, this kind of wisdom. So verse 12 says, I turn myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. That's why I have as a thought underneath that. Uh, first of all, everything I try to do has already been done. Everything I try to know is already known. And then he's going to basically say, and everything that I will learn is going to be forgotten anyway after, after I'm gone. What is the use to that? Isn't that kind of vanity and grasping for the wind? Verse 13 uh, he says, wisdom is really no better than folly. Then I saw wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. That's good. Wisdom's better than foolishness. Verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head. That's, that's good. It's a good place for him. But the fool walks in darkness. Yet I, I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. Foolish or smart. Foolish or wise. Some people have a great life, and they're as foolish as can be. <laughs> Some people are very smart and very brilliant and have a very tough life, right? Uh, it doesn't necessarily change those circumstances in your life. But it's better <laughs> to have wisdom than folly. It's better uh, to know than not to know. Some of the most brilliant people we know in life are reprobate people, obviously. 
In, in this world in which we live where knowledge is so easy to have and, and, and what you can learn around the world, and yet we look at some people that lead our countries and lead our universities and lead our governments and lead our military and lead all, can, can sometimes be the most reprobate type of people. Wisdom doesn't necessarily uh, mean that you're serving God. You have to use it for Him. And then all is forgotten, verses 15 to 16. The same thing happens to everyone. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this is also vanity. You ever felt like that? Lord, I'm serving you. I'm trying to do the right thing. Look what happened to me. And here's this, my neighbor over here who's as reprobate as can be. And he gets by just fine. <laughs> nothing, nothing bad ever happens to him. At least you don't know that it does. The world is full of that, isn't it? And sometimes it's, that's why people say, well, then where is a good God if, if bad things happen to good people and nothing bad happens to bad people? Where is God in all of that? So he's kind of reflecting on that type of thought. And then, uh, again, no one's going to remember verse 16. There is no remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that is now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As a fool. Same way, that is. We brought nothing into the world. We take nothing out. We all come to the end of our days. No one can extend their days beyond what God has given, and we're all put in the ground. Uh, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, and that's where we end up. Now, it's true that uh, some wise people, their words, their, their books, their history goes on, but they're gone. And they're in their eternal reward, whichever that may be. And too many times it's not a good reward. So our work is forgotten. And at least for the average person, for you and me, uh, we have these 70, 80, 90 years uh, on this earth to serve God, and then we'll be gone. And uh, somebody said, our life is a dash. And that is the dash on your tombstone between the date of your birth and the date of your death. <laughs> You're the dash in between. And that's all people will ever see of your life. So was it worth it to serve God? Let me tell you, in eternity, when we're with the Lord in heaven the one thing that will count is what we did for God, Christ on this earth and what we did with the time that we had. So what is the conclusion to this? Kind of sad when he says, therefore, I hated life. I mean, when I was in that mode in my time, when I sought after the wrong kind of things, even in wisdom, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me. All is vanity, grasping after the wind. Kind of horrible when you think about it. Someone I read quoted Voltaire, brilliant man uh, in this world, who said, I hate life, and then he said, yet I'm afraid to die. I hate life, but I'm afraid to die. Where did all of his brains get him? Not very far. Then I remembered 1 Peter 3, 10. He that will love life, Ah, Bible speaks to us. He that will love life and see good days, 
Let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. That's what life is all about. That's what we should be doing. All right? Thirdly, then, is the vanity of labor. It seems like that's what he said the first time, but again, he's kind of covering these uh, same concepts again. But notice how he puts it this time. Verse 18, he says, Then uh, I hated all my labor, which I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I had in my notes there, first of all, our labor is just for one generation, it seems like. It's for us, and then it's gone. We give it to somebody else. Uh, our property, our house, uh, they can have my car, uh, you know, whatever. We, we, it goes to somebody else. And you know what Solomon may have been thinking? My son Rehoboam. I was David's son, but my son Rehoboam, what will he do? What will he do when I'm gone? And you know what? We know the story. A foolish son. And the wise men came to Solomon's son and said, Are you going to be wise like your father and treat people kindly and, and help them? Or are you going to be a mean ogre with a large stick? And the young men came to him and said, Be the mean guy, large stick. That'll get you somewhere. And Rehoboam, for all of the advantages he had in life, didn't follow, follow his father's wisdom and advice, went after what the young men told him to do. You remember, you remember that story. So let's read on a little bit. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Maybe he saw it coming. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a wise man whose, uh, uh, excuse me, there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. <laughs> this is also vanity and a great evil. Now, you, you know, Someone said, and I believe this is absolutely true, that things in our, in our lifetime last about three generations. Businesses, schools, even churches, and sometimes families that serve God. There's something about that process of three generations that by the time you get to those third, that third generation of of uh, workers, third generation of citizens, third generations of even members of a church, members of a family, that the, that the vision, the dedication of the first generation is lost after three generations. More true than we want to admit, isn't it, that that happens like that. It did with David to Solomon to Rehoboam. Uh, even... even uh, Eli, the priest, his sons were terrible. Samuel's sons did not serve God. And so many examples even in the scripture of those kinds of things. And so how important is it to pass on not just the things that we've collected, not just facts that we've learned, but pass on the service of God to our children. Pass on our faith 
pass on uh, what is important in life, whether they ever have anything or not. The happiest people in life can be those that are serving God together and have that joy of, uh, in their heart. So, 24 and 25, verses 24 and 25 are interesting, uh, and, and actually through half of, of 26, because this is not only the conclusion to this section, but it's part of a conclusion to the whole book. Now, I want you to skip down. I, remember when I read these three conclusions, we went down to verse 26 to the second half of the verse, and he said this, but to the sinner. He gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give it to him who is good for God. In other words, uh, he collects all of this and he doesn't get to enjoy it. This is vanity and grasping for the wind, the same conclusion. But if we back up to verse 24, 25, and half of 26, we find something that actually Solomon will do six times in this book, and that is he will bring a conclusion to this that honors God. And we'll say in the end, but without God it's vanity, but with God it's more than that. So let me read these. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. In other words, enjoy what is good in life. It's not that you shouldn't enjoy it. God has given us great things in this world and great things in life to enjoy uh, with the people we know, with our families, with, with God's creation, with, with what we can make with our hands and all of those kinds of things. He's saying, you know, if God is at the center, then enjoy it. Verse 25, who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? There are different ways to translate that expression, but basically... I took it as, enjoy what is yours. This is, this is the life God has given you. This is the ability God has given you. These are the people that God has given you to live with. Enjoy what God has given you. Don't look at your neighbor. Don't look at that rich person. Don't look at the world and say, boy, I don't have what they have. Look what God has given you. That's all that God's asking you to be a good steward of. He's not asking you anymore. Just take what God has given you and the abilities and how, where he's put you in life and enjoy that. And in verse 26, for God gives wisdom and knowledge, he's talked about that, and joy to a man who is good in his sight. If you will, turn a page to chapter 3 and verse 12. I'll show you the second of these kinds of conclusions. When he gets done with that beautiful passage, there's a time to be born, a time to die, and so forth. In verse 12, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it that man should fear before him, that that which, is, uh, is, uh, that which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. 
And so he's going to say things like that in, at the end of six different sections of this book. It's kind of like, though he brings up a lot of things that seem negative and a lot of things that are warning to us, a lot of things that, that even he fell into in his life, he knows and he's saying, put God first and make God first in your life. So three vanities without, without God are truly a grasping for the wind. But with God, life is profitable. In my putting some uh, reading on these things and, and putting it together for tonight, one of the books I was reading out of mentioned the name of a woman. Her, her name is Clara Tear, T-E-A-R, Clara Tear. Uh, some of you might know her. She lived from 1858 to 1937. Anybody in here? Uh, but in mentioning her name, he mentioned a song that she had written. And I said to myself, I, I know that song. I'm going to show it to you in a minute. I know that song. Well, Clara Tear married a man named William Williams. No, no person ought to give a poor boy a first name the same as his last name. Come on, Bill Bill. What's your name? My name's Bill Bill. <laughs> William Williams. <laughs> So her name is Clara Tear Williams. And in, in a biography, so I, I started uh, looking for information on her. As a, in a biography on her, as, as she was a young girl, and by the way, she, beca she became a writer and a poet. And it says, for most, the world's allure never beckons more strongly than during those susceptible teen years, Right? Clara was also not exempt from such youthful folly and passions. As a teen, she confessed that she had failed to keep the blessing of the Lord and a place of amusement became more attractive. But the Lord had not forsaken her, this author says. He was moving within her, allowing her to realize that the worldly enticements would only leave her with a burning thirst. In vain, she tried to satisfy her hunger by feeding on the husks around her, quote, unquote. Clara came to a definite point when she felt she had been lured and cheated enough by the world's deceits. And so not long after her teenage years, she married William Williams, and he was an educator, an educated man, and both of them together became involved in ministries that they could minister uh, to. Now, in, a bi in her own uh, uh, biography or maybe a journal that she was writing, she wrote this. About, seven, or about 1875, we were, she and her husband, we were helping in meetings in Troy, Ohio, where Professor R.E. Hudson conducted the singing. When just before retiring one night, he asked me, to write a song for a book he was preparing to publish. Before sleeping, I wrote, Satisfied. And in the morning, he composed the music to it. Now, I want you to take your songbook. You, you have it right there in front of you. And I want you to turn to page 298. 298. And if I'd have known this sooner, Barbara, I'd have had you working on this song. <laughs> But some of, us, some of you will know this. Who was it that asked her for 
some words, look at the bottom of the page. Ralph E. Hudson. You notice his dates are similar to hers. And her name, Clara Tear Williams. And remember her, her own testimony of what the Lord brought her through. And let me read it to you. All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. But then the chorus says, Hallelujah, I found him, whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longing. Through his blood, I now am saved. Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone. Longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Verse 3, well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free. Untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah, I found him, whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longing, though his, uh, through his blood I now am saved. How many of you remember singing that song? Some of you remember that tune. We'll, we'll learn that. <laughs> we, we should. That's a testimony from someone who says, there's nothing out there in life without God. All is vanity and vexation of spirit without the Lord in your life. But if he's in your life, hallelujah, <laughs> he found me. And through his blood, I'm saved. Stand with me, if you will. And thinking about that, we'll sing a song, too, and one that we know better, and uh, ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the time that we've had together tonight. Thank you for re what we read in this second chapter of Ecclesiastes, and, and uh, Father, what Solomon saw and passed on to us, and what we know is true in the lives of your saints. So, Father, make it true in our lives also. Help us, wherever we stand in our, the path of our life, to seek you uh, from now to the end of our days with everything that we have. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken will come and lead us in a song. <laughs> 